Hey, it's Gabe. I want to recommend a podcast I think you'll enjoy called What Could Go Right. On What Could Go Right, the hosts, Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varva-Lucas, sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues. They look back at how far society has come and look forward to what it will take to achieve a brighter future. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, listen to What Could Go Right wherever you get your podcasts. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance. Helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with Watson X Governance. Learn more at ibm.com slash governance. IBM. Let's create. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's the groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. This Father's Day, power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. Find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey guys, I hope you enjoy these classic episodes from the TDI HC Vault. I'm currently researching a new crop of stories for next year, so be sure to join me again on January 2nd when we return with all new episodes. See you in the new year. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello, I'm Holly Fry, and I am sitting in this week for Tracy V. Wilson. It's December 28th, and today we are talking about an event that happened in 1895, which is the first paid public screening of Lumiere Brothers films. Auguste and Louis Lumiere were brothers, born two years apart in 1862 and 1864, and they were prolific inventors. Their legacy is most closely tied to early film history, although they worked in a number of mediums. The Lumières, who lived in Lyon, France, worked in the family photography business. And in the early 1880s, at the age of just 17, Louis invented a photographic plate. It's called a blue label plate, or a dry plate. And that plate reduced the need for darkroom development of images. That plate also drove a massive expansion of the family business. It made the Lumières quite wealthy, and it made the name Lumière synonymous with photography. Their father, Antoine, who was still running the family business, wisely set aside a portion of the company's profit to fund ongoing research and experimentation. So later, when Antoine saw one of Thomas Edison's kinetoscope machines in Paris in the mid-1890s, he immediately talked to his sons about developing a process to make the film that was used in the kinetoscope because Antoine thought that they could once again make a huge profit for the family business if they became the suppliers of film in France. But to figure out how to make that film with the holes punched in the side that was run through a kinetoscope, the Lumiere brothers also had to figure out how to make a camera, 
And that proved something of a difficult task. But eventually, it was thinking about a sewing machine that gave Louis the inspiration he needed to solve their main problem, and that was getting the film to advance. So by mimicking the machinations of a sewing machine, he was able to alter a camera. And with that problem solved, the brothers next turned to figuring out how to print film from negatives, and then how to show those prints to people. And they opted to go counter to the kinetoscope, which was viewable only by one person at a time. Louis wanted an audience, and so he developed the idea of film projection. Now, all of those functions that Louis Lumiere invented and his brother also worked on, the film advancement, processing of film, and projection, were all integrated into one machine that they called a cinematograph, for which the brothers first filed a patent on February 13, 1895. A little over a month later, on March 19th of 1895, the Lumieres began making short films with their invention. And by short, I mean really short. (laughs) They tended to run about 50 seconds each, so not even a minute. The first film they made, La Sortie des Usines Lumieres, that's workers leaving the Lumiere factory, was simply a capture of their employees leaving their work at the end of the workday. And the Lumiere films generally were not narrative in nature. Just as that first film, they almost always were just moments out of real life, captured on film, documentary style. At the end of the year, on December 28, 1895, at the Salon Indien du Grand Café in Paris, Auguste and Louis screened their films for a paying audience for the first time. They ran 10 films, so it sounds a little like a film festival, but it was still very short because each of those films ran about 50 seconds. This is the first known instance of films being shown to a paying audience. There were 34 people in the crowd, and each of them had paid one franc. The Lumiere's most famous film, though, was not made until after this presentation. One of their films, which gained a lot of attention early on, was The Arrival of a Train at Ciotat Station. This particular film features, as the title suggests, a train pulling into a station. And from the perspective of the viewer, that train is coming down the tracks right toward them. The initial audience reaction to this film is one of those items in history that's a matter of some debate. Some accounts claim that the audience was terrified by the experience, and they screamed and even fled. But other accounts indicate that there was really a more subdued reaction. The panicked reaction version, of course, has gained some traction over the years just by virtue of being a juicier story. The Lumieres briefly started a business making and distributing films, but they eventually moved on from moving pictures to other endeavors, including developing an early system for color photography, while men like Georges Méliès took film and ran with it. If you'd like to learn more about the Lumiere Brothers, good news, Stuff You Missed in History Class has a two-parter on them, which originally aired in November of 2017. I want to thank Casey Pegram and Chandler Mays for their work on the audio for this podcast. And if you would like to, and you should, you can subscribe to This Day in History Class on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and anywhere you get podcasts. Tomorrow's topic turns from entertainment, unfortunately, to a more serious and tragic event that actually took place five years before the Lumiere's first paid film presentation. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Mosley, and I want to let you know about my new immersive BBC Radio 4 podcast series, Deep Calm. It's all about how to tap into and activate a remarkable system that we all have. 
hardwired inside of us, our relaxation response. And it's been developed to be listened to at any time you want to really unwind. I hope you'll listen wherever you get your BBC podcasts. What are you looking for in a new smart TV? 4K picture quality? High quality and immersive sound? A sleek design? All of those are givens, but only the new Roku Pro series has all of those and the Roku streaming experience, an award-winning OS. Get fast, easy access to all your apps like iHeart, where you can stream all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts all day, and regular all-inclusive trips to Roku City. The new Roku Pro series, a smart TV built by the streaming pros. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. Hi, everyone. I'm Eves. Welcome to This Day in History class, a show that will convince you that history can be fascinating even when you expect it not to be. The day was December 28, 1903. American jazz musician Earl Hines was born. Hines was born in Duquesne, Pennsylvania, a suburb of Pittsburgh. His family was steeped in music, His mother played the organ and piano. His father played the cornet with the Eureka Brass Band. His sister Nancy played the organ. His brother played piano. His aunt sang light opera, and his uncle played brass instruments. Hines began taking piano lessons early on, and he worked toward the goal of becoming a concert pianist. When he was in high school, he moved to Pittsburgh, where he lived with his aunt. There, he fell in love with jazz. In his own music, he turned away from classical music and toward jazz. As a teenager, he formed a trio with a violinist and a drummer. The group played at high school events, church socials, and nightclubs. Since Hines still had to go to school, his schedule was taxing. So he left school at age 16 to pursue his career in jazz. In 1922, Hines began working at the Leader House, a nightclub, with singer and band leader Lois B. Deppie. The band went to Ohio, West Virginia, and New York City. And while he played with Debbie's band, Hines developed his own style. He created a technique of playing a melody in octaves that was known as the trumpet style. In 1923, he went to Richmond, Indiana, where he had his first recording sessions with Debbie. But the next year, Hines left Debbie and led his own band, which included saxophonist Benny Carter. But soon, he moved to Chicago, which had a big jazz scene. In the city, he met people like Louis Armstrong, Jelly Roll Morton, and Benny Goodman. Hines, Armstrong, and drummer Zudi Singleton began playing regularly at the Sunset Cafe. When the club temporarily closed in 1927, the band broke up and Hines began playing at the Apex Club with clarinetist Jimmy Noon. The next year, Hines was on several recordings. That included some with Louis Armstrong's Hot Five and Hot Seven. Hines's piano style was notable on these recordings, and he began to be viewed as not just a talented musician, but as a jazz innovator. Hines also recorded a series of piano solos in 1928. 
That December, Hines began leading a big band at the Grand Terrace Ballroom. They worked every day of the week, and they spent months touring every year. The band also got a lot of airtime on the radio, helping popularize them outside of Chicago. When Hines lectured one radio announcer on drinking, the announcer gave him the nickname Father, and it stuck, even though Hines didn't like the moniker. Hines stayed at the Grand Terrace for 11 years and recorded a lot with the band. He left with the band in 1940, feeling exploited and underpaid. Over the next few decades, he was involved in various ventures. He played with the Louis Armstrong All-Stars. He played at the Club Hangover in San Francisco for five years. And he opened a club in Oakland in 1963. But that didn't last long. He played three solo concerts at the Little Theater in New York in 1964. And he toured the world, including dates in the Soviet Union, on a tour for the U.S. State Department. Hines played the piano until just before his death, even though he had been dealing with arthritis and heart problems. He played his last gig in San Francisco, just before he died in Oakland in April of 1983. Many people consider Hines the father of modern jazz piano playing. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can find us on social media at TDIHC Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Email still works. Send us a note at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Mosley and I want to let you know about my new immersive BBC Radio 4 podcast series, Deep Calm. It's all about how to tap into and activate a remarkable system that we all have, hardwired, inside of us, our relaxation response. And it's been developed to be listened to at any time you want to really unwind. I hope you'll listen wherever you get your BBC podcasts. What are you looking for in a new smart TV? 4K picture quality? High quality and immersive sound? A sleek design? All of those are givens, but only the new Roku Pro Series has all of those and the Roku Streaming Experience, an award-winning OS. Get fast, easy access to all your apps like iHeart, where you can stream all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts all day, and regular, all-inclusive trips to Roku City. The new Roku Pro Series, a smart TV built by the streaming pros. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM. Let's create. Hello, and welcome to This Day in History class a show that flips through the pages of history to deliver old news in a new way. I'm Gabe Luzier, and today we're exploring the life and times of Rob Roy, a real-life Scottish bandit who became one of the world's most enduring literary legends. The 
The day was December 28, 1734. Rob Roy MacGregor, a Scottish bandit turned folk hero, died at his home in the village of Balwitter. He was many things throughout his life, including a soldier, a businessman, a cattle rustler, and an extortionist. Today, he's best remembered as a daring romantic hero, kind of like the Robin Hood of Scotland. That perception is largely due to the many fictionalized novels, plays, comic books, and movies that have been made about him since his death. However, Rob Roy actually became a legend within his own lifetime. Eleven years before his death, the first written account of his life was published, a fictionalized biography by Daniel Defoe titled Highland Rogue. The book changed Rob Roy's life and ensured that history would remember him as far more than a violent bandit. Robert MacGregor was born in early 1671 at Glengyle at the head of Loch Katrine in the southern highlands of Scotland. He was the third son of Donald MacGregor, a landholder and chieftain of Clan MacGregor. Rob inherited red hair from his mother, Margaret Campbell. This trait later inspired his nickname, Raybert Ruud, which means Robert the Red in Gaelic. The reference to his red hair was later lost in translation when Rob Ruda was anglicized into Rob Roy. The MacGregors were Jacobites, a predominantly Catholic group that supported the exiled King of Scotland, James VII, and opposed his Protestant usurper, King William III. In 1689, a Scottish convention of Parliament recognized William III and his wife Mary as the joint monarchs of Scotland. The result was an immediate uprising among the Jacobites, culminating in the Battle of Killiecrankie in late July of that year. The Jacobites won the day, but their leader, Viscount Dundee, was among the casualties. Without his leadership, the Jacobite uprising fell apart fast. Rob Roy and his father both fought in the rebellion alongside the rest of Clan MacGregor. As a result, when the Jacobites were defeated, the MacGregor name was banned by law. Discouraged by the loss, Rob gave up on politics and warfare. He adopted his mother's maiden name of Campbell and married his cousin Mary in January of 1693. The former soldier settled into domestic life. He started a business driving cattle to the market town of Creef on the border between the Scottish Highlands and Lowlands. The business succeeded thanks in large part to the financial backing of the Duke of Montrose, a wealthy landowner who invested heavily in Roy's business. Sadly, all that good fortune went to ruin in 1711. Late that year, Rob borrowed money from the Duke to pay for cattle for the next year's market. Rob made the purchase and then sent his head drover, or cattle driver, to pick up the order. However, the employee never returned. After picking up the cattle, he sold them to someone else and then disappeared with the money. Despite his best efforts, Rob failed to track down the thief. 
He pledged to repay the loan himself, in time, but the Duke of Montrose wasn't having it. The powerful Duke declared Rob an outlaw. He then seized all of his lands and even evicted his wife and four sons in the dead of winter. Now on the run as a wanted man, Rob Roy set his sights on revenge. He launched an ongoing campaign against the Duke of Montrose, stealing his cattle and robbing his employees every chance he got. Over time, Rob began targeting other wealthy landowners as well. He extorted money and property from them in exchange for protection against other cattle rustlers. And if a farmer refused to pay up, then he just stole their animals himself. The feud went on for years, partly because Rob's efforts were aided by the Duke's enemies, and partly because the public's admiration emboldened Rob Roy. He frequently shared his ill-gotten loot with the poor, especially those who had been mistreated by the Duke as he had been. This earned him a reputation as a champion of the people. In 1715, another Jacobite rebellion broke out, but this time, Rob didn't join the fight. In fact, he plundered both sides. And when the rebellion was defeated again, he just went right back to robbing Montrose. The revenge campaign continued for another seven years. It finally came to an end in 1722, when a different duke helped arrange a reconciliation between Rob and Montrose. However, even though he and the duke mended fences, Rob was later arrested for his crimes and sent to Newgate Prison in London. He spent the next four years behind bars, while in the outside world, his legendary status began to take shape. With the release of Daniel Defoe's book, Highland Rogue, Rob's popularity with the public reached an all-time high. Finally, in 1727, King George I of Great Britain was persuaded by the public to pardon Rob for his many crimes. The reprieve came through just in time, as the outlaw was just about to be transported to a penal colony in Barbados. Instead, the 56-year-old outlaw was released and allowed to spend the remaining years of his life in the peaceful village of Balwitter. He died there seven years later, on December 29, 1734. He was buried on New Year's Day and was survived by his four sons. His grave still stands, and in the 20th century, an inscription was added to the stone. In tribute to his defiance, it reads, quote, MacGregor, despite them. The legend of Rob Roy has only grown since his death. His exploits, both real and imagined, have been the subject of countless adaptations for the page and screen. Outside of stories, Fans can visit Scotland and tour the real-life locations that featured in Rob Roy's life. Many of these sites are even linked by a long-distance trail called the Rob Roy Way. There's even a famous cocktail named after him. It's said to have originated at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City. In 1894, a Broadway production of an operetta based on Rob Roy's life premiered at a theater down the street from the hotel. At the time, it was common practice for the hotel bar to name drinks after current Broadway shows. 
The Rob Roy was a simple spin on a much more popular drink, the Manhattan. The only difference? A Manhattan uses American whiskey, while a Rob Roy is made with, you guessed it, scotch. I'm Gabe Luzier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can learn even more about history by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to send them my way at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thank you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. What are you looking for in a new smart TV? 4K picture quality? High quality and immersive sound? A sleek design? All of those are givens, but only the new Roku Pro series has all of those and the Roku streaming experience, an award-winning OS. Get fast, easy access to all your apps like iHeart, where you can stream all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts all day, and regular all-inclusive trips to Roku City. The new Roku Pro series, a smart TV built by the streaming pros. What's up, guys? This is Sean, Lights Out Merriment, and Saturday, June 15th, Lights Out Extreme Fighting 17 returns to Casino Palma in San Diego. Get your tickets now at LightsOutXF.com, and we'll be live on Lights Out Sports TV, available on all major platforms. Doors open at 5 p.m. Pacific. You don't want to miss this one. It's going to be Lights Out. Lights Out Sports is free sports TV by athletes for fans. For details about the event and tickets, go to LightsOutXF.com.